the binaries and endpoints and fixed positions is not how the world works. We're a, everything works in cycles. We're a part of that cycle. And the unwillingness to kind of engage in cycles because it takes us out of the equation as being important. If we're not the main character, if we're not the end point, who are we? And it, you know, again, yeah, yeah. humility, being part of something bigger, part of that process. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Nikki Yatzel. Nikki is a first-generation regenerative farmer based out of Aberdeenshire, and she's also the co-founder of the Regenerative Women on the Land movement. Nikki joined me to discuss food, where it comes from, how we produce it, our relationship to the land, our relationship to one another. And this is such a delightful conversation. I mean, we spend the first 30 minutes speaking about systems and nature and disconnection and decay and death and patriarchy and feminism and joy and wonder and complexity. We really could have spent, I think, the entire interview in that kind of echelon of conversation, but we do obviously bring it back to regenerative agriculture, discussing the impacts of industrial agriculture versus regenerative agriculture, how regenerative agriculture is actually quite difficult to study, and the vitriol against agriculture, which Nikki suggests is a kind of misplaced vitriol towards capitalism that fails to understand the complexity of animals' roles within ecosystems and how farm animals can provide for natural ecosystems. We discuss agroecology, the global diet, the homogenization of food, how food has been disaggregated from land supply. And we also get into the nitty gritty of some of the debates at the moment between proponents of land produced meat and proponents of agroecology, pasture fed beef. This is a conversation that is essentially about how do we model reality from systems? How do we understand complexity? How do we take sight of the big picture? How do we speak to one another? How do we understand that which we cannot understand or understand how to let go of that which we cannot understand? This is truly such a beautiful conversation. It's one of my favorites on the show. I was delighted by how many things that we touched upon and weaved together to explore a really nuanced, diverse, necessary, urgent, beautiful sad conversation around what humans' role is in the world, around our relationship to the natural world and to each other. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Nikki, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much for the invitation. Really looking forward to our conversation. As am I. So the first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Well, um, yeah, that's a big question, right? So I think 
from my work, but also the kind of research that I'm doing at the moment um, through my study. I think that probably a lot of it comes down to uh, our need to reconnect with nature. Um, and I'm going to use the word nature, not that it is a word that lots of people like or that lots of people agree with, or um, and it can often be misunderstood by people, but I'm just going to use it because it seems to be a, a useful proxy proxy for kind of things that aren't us um, and, you know, the kind of natural systems and ecosystems. So I think, yeah, a, a lack of connection with those ecosystems, with those processes um, and understanding that we have a role within those ecosystems to play, that we're not just kind of passive observers on the outside, um, that actually we understand our role within those ecosystems is really important, whether that's an agro ecosystem where we're producing food and fibre or fuel products, or whether it's um, a an ecosystem where we just go and sit somewhere by a nice stream in a wood and, and enjoy being there. I think it we've kind of too much disconnected all these different systems apart from each other and then disconnected ourselves from them. And um, I think we could probably do well to, to try and re-engage there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I suppose the one thing that I would like tease out is perhaps that like binary so this is a thing we see that kind of like, oh, there's the human world and then there's the natural world as if we're not like biological, physical species that come from the same, you know, ancestors all that, all those aeons ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, that it's really interesting, like looking back and reading, um, uh, like reading uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, for example, by Robin Wall Kimmerer and just her, the beauty with what she talks about being a part of the ecosystem and understanding that um that the kind of linear or expected rules just don't always apply and things work in very organic natural ways and that we should kind of be okay with that and I think we've it's not just about who we are but how we think and like you're saying that kind of binary um way of thinking means that quite often we just assume that a la land for example or plants are going to um respond to conditions in a particular way and when that doesn't happen and we kind of get cross about it and we're like, well, we need to find out why without actually going, oh, okay, well, maybe that's just what happens and that's all right. You know, I'm not yeah. saying that we shouldn't value scientific inquiry. Of course we should. It's a really important part of understanding, you know, why we're here and what we're doing and how we can fix some of the, sh the massive challenges that we're dealing with. But at the same time, a bit of magic, a bit of wonder, a little bit of just knowing that it's right because it feels right in our gut shouldn't be discounted. Yeah. You know, when you were, the word mastery that you just used is very interesting. I'm like such a problem with that word. Um, and instead of used, you know, scientific inquiry. And it's just this idea of like, if we allow for the magic and wonder in scientific inquiry, then we will also allow for the uncertainty that we don't have to master everything, that we can't master everything because you cannot yeah. be the master if you're within the ecosystem as well. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, uh, I'm gonna. One of my friends will laugh that I'm like what nine minutes in and already talking talk about patriarchy. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> like this. this the, the more I learn and the more I realize that I have to learn, and that you know, the less that I really understand about the ecosystems we're working with and or within, I realize that you know, so much of what we assume and the decisions that we make are based on these very kind of um, patriarchal structures of how we understand the world, how we interpret things. I mean, one that really jumps out for me is this idea of competition mm -hmm. so quite often when I'm um so I graze pasture with cattle and I whenever I'm sort of grazing land I will be looking at you know the impact on that grass and thinking about 
um, how the cattle have, have interacted with the grassland and the plants and the different animals that are there. And quite often when I talk to other people or I'm reading about this, there will be words like, you know, competitive species or competitive grasses or the grasses need to outcompete each other. And I just kind of feel like it's not really what happens. So I think there is an element of, of it's more collaborative than that. And um, yeah, and this idea that there's a kind of, there's a competition to win or that some plants will dominate others or that, you know, there's a kind of um, quite an aggressive way of thinking about plants and how they p- perform in ecosystems. And all of these words become very much kind of aligned with or almost tainted with these kind of patriarchal ideas of, oppression and dominance and you know holding domain over somewhere and it's um yeah it's a it's a really interesting kind of phenomenon in interestingly the the work that I'm doing my PhD research I go out and talk to farmers and I go on to farm with them and I ask them lots of questions about nature and the role that nature connectedness has in decision making on their farm and one of the things I say is take me to your favorite place on the farm and tell me why it's your favorite place and uh, all of the men take me to the top of the farm so that we can look down on the farm. And I was kind of thinking about this and I was laughing about it. I was chatting to a friend and we were talking about, you know, is this about dominion? Is it about these men standing at the top of the farm, looking down on what they own or what they have control over? And I, I asked a couple of farmers, this, is, that, is that what this is about? And they were like, do you know what? It's not. It's because... Every day during my work, I'm focusing on those sheep or that field or that tractor. And sometimes I just want to come up here and get a bit of perspective. And I want to be able to see the entire picture. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I am conscious that it's very easy to kind of go off on a rant or a tirade about the evil, the patriarchy, and then make assumptions that everything that we see is probably aligned with that. But then actually there are times when I kind of have to swallow what I'm saying a bit and go well maybe you know that's my assumption oh it's patriarchy it's you know men wanting to look down over what they've in dominion but actually it's not sometimes it can be about perspective and that's equally important you know that's really important taking that kind of you know management consultants call it the balcony view and being able to stand back and look at what what you're doing and, and take a bit more perspective is equally important as it is getting down on your hands and knees in the sward and looking at that particular flower so yeah Sorry, I've gone off on a bit of a no, ramble. No, do not, do not apologise. This is, I mean, I did not think that this is where we would end up within about <laughs> seven minutes, but I'm very glad about it um, <laughs> because I was just in Berlin and it's a very queer city. It's a very artistic city. You know, everything's, everything is happening in Berlin. And the conversations I was having there with like, artists was all around like oppression and domination and exploitation. And like, I have these conversations every day as part of my work. With them, it was very much through the lens of like feminism and queer uh, struggles. And I was, the more that I spoke to them, the more I was like, I think maybe the feminist scholars and queer scholars are onto something. Like maybe this is actually the root of the problem because we all talk about this. Like there's the big picture and then how do we, what's the, <laughs> what's the one thing? If there is a one thing, you know, what, it, what is it within our behavior that sort of engenders this kind of, um, or within our ideology that engenders this kind of behavior and it is domination and exploitation and oppression. And that first probably happened between the sexes. And so like using feminism to try and understand the patriarchy, which is not the only form that has been around, um, but it's certainly the one upon which everything else has been built in our society today. That might really be what we need to do. So I'm very glad that we're actually going down this route. It's very much on my love the universe, man. Always, always, (laughs) always, she's listening. (laughs) 
I think there's also sometimes, I feel sometimes it's easy to see struggle where there isn't. And, and like, we also have to remind ourselves that, and also that exists in, in the natural world, you know, like the, um, predator animals preying on prey animals and, you know, enable and doing that in order to survive. So we have to, and, and I think sometimes we're at risk of taking ideology and applying it to the natural world when actually yeah. it doesn't necessarily fit there and it doesn't make sense. So yeah, I, yeah, I think like I've been in, doing some reading around like political ecology and understanding how some of these ideas around um, particularly feminist political, um, political ecology and understanding how feminist ideas interrelate with um, ecosystems and, and ecology. And sometimes I feel like some of the writing just takes it a bit too far and makes assumptions yeah. about very natural, normal systems and processes and, and kind of applies this assumption that they too are now reflecting you know, the, the perils of the patriarchy. And I think, well, it may be, but also maybe that's part of just what happens in some parts of nature and some ecosystems. So, uh, yeah, we have, to, we have to be careful that we don't um, become a victim of our own ideolog ideological stance by then assuming that that applies everywhere, <laughs> even to systems that are outside of our control. Because this is this is the irony about that, right? It's quite like a patriarchal thing to do to sort of say, well, the whole world is in my image, actually. And yes. so now all so, of these systems, <laughs> even if it's through an eco-feminist perspective, all of these systems are now reflecting uh, eco-feminism and perils of the patriarchy. Like, no, yes. there's a lot of entropy in natural systems. There's a lot of bloody chaos. <laughs> a lot of random. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally. how it keeps going. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, yeah, we just, we, we just kind of, um, I think we just need to be a bit more humble as humans, you know, and just not accept, not think that we have all the answers and not think that we can interpret everything that's going on around us. And like, and that comes back to what I was saying about reconnecting with nature. So I saw on Twitter the other day, this woman had rescued a pigeon that had been attacked by a sparrow hawk. Um, and I think she just, you know, naturally followed her natural kind of walked around the corner taking her dog for a walk sparrow hawk attacking pigeon she sort of went oh my god and the sparrow hawk took off and she was then trying to you know resuscitate and rescue and help this pigeon and most people probably would have done something similar um and uh she got so much heat on twitter for kind of rescuing this pigeon and i thought well you know yeah maybe she didn't do the right thing and and maybe she didn't and then she was sort of saying you know it's enjoying a head massage and it's having a it's enjoying a fuss and I'm like no no it isn't it's a I mean it's a prey animal it's probably very stressed that you're poking it in there and it was you know that kind of thing of she did what she thought was the right thing at the time but then like as humans we can't just let go and stop we kind of have to try and give the pigeon a head massage or we have to try and do you know what I mean and I just think you know we're, we've got to that point where we're so disconnected that even you know we we our, our natural instinct is to save an animal, for example, and that's fine. But then we we kind of want to apply these human assumptions that you know, well, if I was if I was distressed, I'd quite like it. So, so I'm going to do that to this animal rather than thinking what does you know this animal is a prey species. It probably just wants to sit somewhere dark and and safe. It doesn't really need me, this big kind of scary human poking it. So yeah, I think even when we try and do the right thing or the best thing. We often still get it wrong because we've got so become so disconnected from animals and what types of animals they are, and also understanding how we fit into that. It's um, yeah, it's and and you know it's interesting because farmers talk about this a lot, and they say, you know, the public don't understand farming, and the public don't understand what it takes to produce their food, and they they probably don't. But you know, we've kind of collectively enabled that by supporting the power of the supermarkets to disconnect us from where the food comes from and tell the story that they choose to tell rather than the realities of what's actually happening. So, you know, we're, we're all 
even even if we're farmers, we're still food consumers. We still eat food, so we we still buy food, and we still have a, a responsibility to do that in a way that we that we expect others to. You know, if we're as food producers saying everyone should eat British or they should, um, you know, buy meat that comes from these particular places, then you know we should be doing that. We 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 can't have one rule for everybody else and another for us as food producers. So um, yeah, there's a there's a lot of inconsistency, I think, in our in our experience as humans at the moment and it's it yeah. creates a huge amount of tension but yeah. that's tricky yeah. it's the it's the cognitive dissonance of just how we move through the world and even that like the the compulsion to like save an animal that we identify as like victim of injustice um and very often the people that feel that will also be the people who eat a lot of meat for example or meat that's been factory farmed that they don't know where it's come from and there's a huge amount of injustice within that system of course and you know, as you were talking there, and, I, and we will get into farming, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but you were talking about being disconnected from nature again. And another word that came to me was like being disconnected from death. Like we don't know how to die and we don't know how yeah. to let anything else die as well. And like death is a part of it. Like I've been sort of vegan and vegetarian and not on and off for like the past decades sort of cycling through. Um, and I always turn vegan when like the guilt gets too much. And then I always turned a uh, vegetarian event after a few months because I remember I still can't cook. And then I always cycle back around to meat because I actually feel like I need it, you know, for a while. And it, I struggled with it. And then I did ayahuasca a few months ago and felt like the, you know, the, 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 the plant medicine from Peru, you know, you just get, it's a crazy psychedelic. And I just really felt like connected to everything in the universe, like total ego disillusion. There was no boundary between me and all of the other living beings, even the non-living beings. And on like high out of my mind on ayahuasca, I was like, oh, I can eat meat. Like if we're all connected, if we are all one, then there is no problem with me eating, you know, my brother, my sister, my whatever. Um, as long as it's done in a just and a safe and a kind way, because like that, that individual that like, and that moment, my individual death felt like it was totally meaningless because mm. I would just go back to everything else and become everything else. And so yeah. each individual death is actually, it's beautiful. We're all like filling each other all the time and nothing ever truly disappears. And that really kind of changed something for me. And now when I see it's changed my relationship to nature slightly, like, now I don't really see it as this like uh, victim that needs to be saved, nor a victim that needs to be saved from us by our like human systems, but just this like amazing, chaotic, systemic, beautiful thing that will like, will be fine eventually at the end of the day. The problem is whether or not we are going to be fine with it if we screw yeah. everything up. Totally you know? agree. Totally agree. And that's so, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like when I'm, I haven't ever uh, engaged in ayahuasca, but the people who have, I'm always like, geez, can you imagine if your whole society was just like doing that shit all the time? Like yeah. how we would be as a society with, like if that was part of your rituals and your, um, and your, you know, important way of kind of communicating with the other, then yeah, like you'd have just been so enlightened. Um, but yeah, so I, I, you're, you're totally right. And there was, you know, why is it, when you realize that everything is so connected um and i'm also would be quite scared of uh kind of having that experience because i kind of feel like that already and i'm like shit if i think like that already like what on earth would happen if there was some kind of um yeah kind of way of of even uh kind of um yeah 
kind of um, making that even more intense. But um, if if we are all connected, as you say, like there isn't a difference in that sense between eating a cabbage and meat. Like as, you know, the 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 understanding of like how these things um, are connected and placed in the world, and that all of them are have a role to play. But at the same time, it's a cycle, and that's the bit I think we really miss. You know, we've become so obsessed with. Um, storing carbon and locking carbon away we've completely forgotten that carbon is the building block of all life yeah. um, and that carbon cycling is a totally normal and and important process for life to to occur so like i talk to people who kind of go um and, and it was interesting i was at groundswell last month and i was on a panel talking about um british pasture leather which is leather that is produced from 100 percent pasture fed cattle in the uk and it's um a really great uh project that's being run by these two brilliant women um Alison uh, Alice uh, and Sarah Alice Robinson Sarah Grady and I was not they'd been invited me kindly to be on a panel and someone asked about um you know the potential to kind of lock up carbon in sheep wool and I gave a response that was kind of you know well you know we need to stop thinking that we can just lock everything up all the time that sheep's wool at some point will degrade because it's a natural product it will happen and that's fine because that's just what happens that's just how that's how life works and the, the person got quite upset with me that I'd kind of dismissed the idea of locking up carbon but you know we just got into this world where we've lost the the kind of importance of the cycle and we've yeah. become totally in focused on endpoints. And this takes us back to our conversation a little bit, you know, a little while ago about binaries. Binaries and endpoints and fixed positions is not how the world works. We're a, everything works in cycles. We're a part of that cycle. And the unwillingness to kind of engage in cycles because it takes us out of the equation as being important. If we're not the main character, if we're not the endpoint, who are we? And it, you know, again, led to humility, being part of something bigger, part of that process. And yeah, you're right. And the idea of death and the role of death is um is really interesting. My um my dad died when I was uh twelve and I remember someone saying to me at the time, there are two types of people in this world. There are people who've really who've lost somebody and then there's people who haven't. And um and it, it experiencing death in that way I think really changes how you understand endpoints or cycles. And it's you know, experiencing that as a child I think is a very um also a hugely powerful and very traumatic thing to experience and it does change your perspective of kind of life and death I think and you you maybe don't like I didn't realize that it changed my perspective until I hit my 30s and then I was like okay I think differently about these things from maybe other people who haven't experienced that so yeah and I think you know in in history we all would have experienced a lot more death a lot earlier in our lives um, whether that was animals that we were expected to take part in killing or preparing and then, you know, working collectively as a community to prepare that food or to um, salt that meat to preserve it or whether it was just seeing more people around us dying because, you know, we didn't have a health service, whatever yeah. it was. So, you know, this, this is a very modern new experience to be so kind of cleansed from decay or death or change and everything gets taken away from us, doesn't it? You know, something dies or we it becomes waste and this idea that things are waste. And that they no longer have a role to play is it is just such a strange, bizarre um, place to be. But I guess if we have stuff that doesn't break down, like plastic oh. and these and oil, and we have these property these um, these items that have these properties that mean that they are not cyclical, then our whole understanding of cycles just suddenly goes out the window. Mm. 
I, mean, I think important to note the, the, there's a lot of products that could be. I mean, yeah, plastic too. was bloody invented for its like recyclable properties, and then everybody just got hooked on the profit making part of it because it's so cheap <laughs> to reach. <laughs> <right. laughs> this close, guy. This close. Um, <laughs> I think that like cleansed from decay. And thank you for sharing that about your father. My grandfather died when I was um, 15. And um, after a really horrible year of lots of things happening that shouldn't have happened. And I remember like seeing his um, dead body in the morgue, actually. I just felt that that was important. And it's, it's really ingrained in my brain because he, he looked alive, but I knew that he wasn't. And it's like, what do you do with that? Mm. Where are you now? If your body is still here, which is how I used to engage with you, but it's not going to animate and wake up and ask me how school was. What do I now do with this? You know? Yeah. And then, oh God, the whole, I mean, the whole thing is so bizarre. Funerals and everybody being so, be so sad. Like, I understand it's grief, but there's no joy as well. And like, all of the memories, all of the beauty, all of the wonder that like, we got so much. My grandfather died when, I, when he was 78. That's amazing. We got so much time with him. But instead, mm-hmm. it was this thing of like, we didn't hit 80 or you didn't hit 85 and it's like bloody hell like nobody lives forever no Please. i think that's like where the importance of rituals like comes in yeah. and we've kind of lost you know we've we've really lost that um particularly in the uk like we just uh, and it, yeah it's kind of interesting just within um you know local to the uk thinking about it, in ireland that's a very different experience and in scotland again like where i live it's you know, again different that there's a slightly different relationship with with funerals and death than there is in England, for example. So, but I think, um, you know, we definitely, we don't have the ritual. We don't have the community so much around death, um, as many other, um, cultures do, or, you know, and that, that gives time that that important kind of mm-hmm. process that needs to happen mm-hmm. to accept and understand. And you, know, you said, what do I do with that? Well, if we had rituals in places in place there to help us cope with that moment of the void <laughs> and then not knowing what to happen then I think that could be can really help but um yeah we sort of we sort of definitely lost that particularly in England I think it doesn't exist so much mm. well it's as you said we've been cleansed of the process you know somebody dies and then essentially the family spends the next few days in this like manic money spending perf- yeah. you know ritual that's admin. the only ritual admin exactly get the body to a funeral home and they and they will perform the ritual they will spend time with the body as it's now known rather than like the person yeah and then everything is presented to you in you know however like embalmed or 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 preserved or or um burned or whatever and it's like you just you just so you only get at the end of the day that like one hour in a strange room in which there's like another another funeral party that's either just exited or waiting to get in as well and that's it. That's the slot for your grief. Yeah. Surrounded by people who are sad and British and don't know how to express their emotions. <laughs> <laughs> so we went away, everything's so screwed up, you know? I know. I know. It's funny, isn't it? Like, I remember um, at my dad's funeral, I got the giggles really badly. And like, yeah, I was, it was, I was, I think at that, yeah, it was basically the funeral was a week of my birthday. So I was 12, oh, 13. Nice. I mean, it was really shit. But, um, the, it was in a beautiful little local church um, near where we lived. And uh, the, the, the vicar, priest, I don't know, I'm not religious. I should probably know the difference. But um, kind of at one point was just sort of sitting there in this really dramatic pose. 
like he obviously, I think he was just thinking and listening to the readings, which are really yeah. beautiful, but he was kind of really like lounging around in this dramatic pose. Oh my God, I just got the giggle so badly. And I was like nudging my mum, like, look at the priest, look at the priest. And then she kind of got the giggles as well. And like the two of us were just, yeah, kind of stifling this. And it was because it was really inappropriate to kind of have the giggles at that point, which made it even more that we were having the giggles, you know, and it was kind of, that's actually what I really remember is at the moment of just being like, what is going on here? Like, it's, it's so surreal and weird. Um, yeah, and it kind of did bring a little bubble of joy back into into a very dis, dis well, yeah, distressing and difficult day. But oh, I'm so glad was, you had that moment. I'm so glad she giggled with you. Well, yeah. That's what happens when you and your mum both have ADHD. You kind of can't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the one time when I've been like, oh, I'm glad that you are also have your brain wired in the same way that I do. <laughs> That's honestly a really, really beautiful story. Really, really beautiful. How sweet. When um, at my grandfather's, and he, we we were very, very close. I spent every day with him. He was he was my dad essentially. And at his, you know, everybody did a, a reading, and I got up, and I just, you know, I said that I'd like found a poem somewhere, and she read it out. And afterwards, at the you know the what's it called a wake in a wake yeah wake everybody still sad um my and they're all listening to this episode and they're gonna sorry guys but it's true my family were like what where did you find the poem and I was like oh and I wrote it and they're like why didn't you why didn't you say that it was yours and I got it in the neck all day for having not you know in a in a in a gentle way but essentially that they couldn't understand why I hadn't like claimed ownership of this thing you know that I'd written it for him and why hadn't I claimed ownership and then they wanted to go around and tell everybody that the great poem had been written by me and I was like and I don't know why I did it like don't get me wrong I love a stage even a funeral stage I, and I don't know but there was just this not fussy and yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there was just this thing there was like, it was like a moment of privacy in a way like I'd written it there were a whole bunch of people in the room that I didn't know it was for him. I wanted to say it for him because it was his funeral, but I didn't need everybody to know that it had come from, do you know what I mean? It was like some way of maintaining a part of it between him and I, in a sense, yeah. maintaining this moment of intimacy in what is a performance. And we could even, I'm sure we could even speak for hours on like splitting hairs and what's the difference between a performance and a ritual, you know, because who knows, they don't feel particularly ritualistic. They feel very performative. Totally, and, totally. You know? Yeah. It's very, it's all very outward. Uh, an outward expression of, of of kind of measured grief. <laughs> so it's like mm-hmm. you've just got to be mm-hmm. just grieve, grieving enough, mm-hmm. not too much, mm-hmm. enough to sort of I show that you care. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Enough to show that you care. And I was like, we're all here. We obviously do care. Can we not just wear bright yellow and have a dance? Yeah. You know, it's, it's all... And, you know, I'm sure, I mean, I'm finding a way. My brain is like finding a little way to bring this back, I think, to farming. But it's this idea of like, being so disconnected even from our own emotional state that we have to show things in a specific way in order to communicate to the our fellow human beings who we are and what we think because we don't seem we really seem to have lost that capacity to like a ask questions <laughs> and b like intuitively understand the diversity of human mm-hmm. culture and the diversity of emotional expression you know you got yeah. the giggles in your dad's funeral great beautiful your mom got it with you beautiful of course you were still like sad. Of yeah, course you of course. could have the giggles and be incredibly sad at the same time. 
But there's something about like, and I bang on about this all the time, sorry, listeners, but like the homogenization of culture and the way that like there's 8 billion of us now when we're all for, we were talking about prey animals. I'm not sure, you know, humankind, are we prey, are we predator, are we some kind of weird apex bulk, uh, given how like fragile our flesh is, but how agile our minds are. You know, it's like, it's madness that we're all living on top of each other all the time and we don't know each other and there's no sense of community. Like I'm sure we are being flooded with stress hormones yeah. all the time with the amount of strangers that we encounter. And so we've had developed these like behaviors essentially that show I'm part of this culture. You don't have to worry about me. Yeah. And like what that has done, not only to our relationship with the world, the natural world, but also our relationship to each other, like the, how easy now it is, like oppression, exploitation, all of these things that didn't exist in like, or as much in smaller cultures, because, you know, the psychopaths just get taken out by the tribe. Um, <laughs> now just how easy it is because everybody's just a stranger to one another. Yeah. And that's why we have to all wear black to a funeral. Otherwise, we actually don't know unless the person is wearing black, whether or not they came to the funeral. For yeah. our person, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. These indicators of like, and it, it's, it's really fascinating what you're saying there, because um, because I because I have I don't, you make can't tell, but I have I have a nose ring, and that means really? that quite often people think I'm a vegan. Quite interesting. I oh, really. Um, so, <laughs> quite often, when I'm in particularly in Glasgow, which is a very um vegan activist, it was an activist city. It's a brilliant city. Oh. I don't know if you know, but maybe you know Glasgow very well. Um, but great love city, it. love it lots of people stop me in Glasgow and try and tell me to become vegan or kind of, you know, like give me a bag that's like, I'm vegan. So, you know, I don't know, like join the club sort of thing. And I'm always like, well, I'm a beef farmer. That doesn't really work for me. But, <laughs> um, and it, and it is that thing of like our external, the things that we wear and that we do externally and how that, how that kind of ingratiates us into a particular tribe or not. And there's, there is something within agriculture, you know, and we all do it. We all find ourselves being chameleons to try and fit with the people that, you know, that we're with, that we all make choices every day about what we wear or what we do or we do with our bodies and to try and to demonstrate that we align with a particular way of thinking or a particular way of being. And yeah, it's really interesting, like within agriculture, the kind of fascinating, almost tribalism and, and cliqueness that, that, that happens. And as a new entrant, female farmer, it's been a really interesting kind of journey to to kind of find my place within that but also um that there are events and things that are happening now within agriculture that are kind of questioning that and shifting that so um groundswell this amazing festival you know the regenerative agriculture festival in in june and they call it a festival it's not a conference it's not a show it's definitely a festival and it is a very joyous um and celebratory event and at most kind of farming events there'll be people wearing particular clothing particular way of dressing and I love groundswell because it just completely throws that out the window and it's like no like just whoever you are whatever you're wearing you know you don't have to kind of demonstrate that you are in the club you haven't got to oh. wear your check shirt and your shuffle gilet you can just turn up as, as you are and everyone is welcome and it's just such a really refreshing thing to kind of be a part of that movement that kind of says oh. we're not we're not who you think we have to be we can be different and we can not only do that in how we come across in what we wear and if you want to wear your check shirt crack on no one's going to question you about it um but if you don't want to that's fine and it's the same for how you farm or how you think about lambs and it's yeah it's interesting how in order to demonstrate that somewhere is a safe space to think differently we kind of we have to have these external cues about how we show up physically whether that's in what we're wearing or how we behave with each other it's yeah it's an interesting uh, phenomenon Definitely. Uh, interesting using that word safe, that term safe space at the end mm. there. 
Like, how do you make a safe space of a society that is inherently unsafe? Now, listen, I think we could keep doing this, but I know that some people are like, it's been 30 minutes. When is Rachel going to let Nikki talk about regenerative agricultures? <laughs> well, I tried so to get in there. I'll try. <laughs> you have tried. I've been, I've been on the patriarchy. Um, so listen, why is it that people that George Monbiot are trying to get everybody onto like vegan lifestyles and saying that there's no way to do um, animal agriculture sustainably? Um, well, God, that is a big question. Maybe mm. we should have started with that one. But yeah, yeah so I think that there's a, one of the challenges that we have collectively within this kind of movement within agriculture is that what we see every single day is not what is represented in the scientific literature. So we have this significant disconnect between our lived experience as farmers who are engaging in these um, methods and approaches and, and ways of thinking and systems and frameworks that demonstrates to us uh, abundance, diversity, health, not just for us, but for our animals, for our ecosystems. And all of the things and the kind of indicators that show us all of that either aren't things that are measured in current um, scientific inquiry, coming back to that phrase, or they can't be measured because the way that we're applying them is too, um, isn't uh, consistent enough. So a lot of us use this term kind of adaptive multi-paddock grazing. So um, there are lots of proponents of, of these kind of grazing systems with livestock. Some, some people call it mob grazing, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, shortened to amp um, is kind of a phrase that is really taking off because it demonstrates that it, it is adaptive and that these things are not fixed and that they can change. Um, and all of these approaches rely on us to be quite, um, they're quite kind of intellect intensive and knowledge intensive. So it's not like you just put animals in a field somewhere and leave them and then come back and take them out and that's you done. You really have to do a lot of planning, a lot of thinking, a lot of monitoring, <clears throat> observing, replanning. It's a very active process to be part of. Um, but the way that we might make decisions isn't consistent enough for it to be accurately assessed by the current scientific methodologies and experimental protocols that researchers want to use. So for example, um, I would, if I'm grazing a group of cattle across the field, I would be looking at the weather conditions. I'd be thinking about whether to come, the weather previously, what I'm managing for, whether I want to manage for a change in the um, species in that sward, whether I want to um, manage for consistency, whether I want to manage for increased particular plants or particular spe uh, wildlife species. There's all these different things that I will have to think about that will influence the way I move the, that group of animals across that landscape. And every single day it might be slightly different. So, you know, it absolutely poured with rain overnight. So I'm going to uh, move them this morning, whereas normally I'd move them in the afternoon. And that means that because then it's going to rain all day, I'm going to move them again in the afternoon. So I'm going to maybe move them twice in a 24-hour period rather than just once. If I'm in the middle of an experimental protocol, I've just ruined their experiment because the experiment would say we're going to move these animals once a day into paddocks this size and regardless of what happens, that's what we're going to do. And so the way that we are managing these ecosystems or managing our animals within these ecosystems is far more adaptive and flexible than the science can cope with as it currently stands. And so that means that the responses that we get in scientific inquiry do not reflect the reality for us because if we are going to uh, shoehorn these grazing systems into an experimental protocol, we tend to not have to do them how we normally would do them. And so we don't get the same results. So it's, yeah, it's a really difficult situation to be in. The other thing is that 
a lot of scientists, and I do quite a lot of work with, with different scientists on on this kind of stuff within my my work with Pasture for Life, is that they don't understand, they just don't know that these grazing systems exist, and they don't really know how they work. So I've been quite a lot of them worked at the moment trying to kind of educate and share and invite researchers out onto farms to see this stuff in action, to have conversations, whether it's on Twitter or in person or in meetings, Zoom presentations, whatever it is, just to try and raise awareness that not all animal, not all livestock husbandry and or for want of a better phrase, or kind of care or looking after animals or grazing management is the same. It's really different. It's really diverse. It's as diverse as we all are. And so it's really difficult to make assumptions about what works and what doesn't in a very reductive physiological way. Mm-hmm. And actually, we seem to get much better results when we take more of a social science approach and we ask farmers what they're seeing and we ask them to self-report on their successes and their failures in their system. Um, but people like George Monbiot don't want that. And, you know, for where, whether it's vested interests on his part or whether it's just a kind of a dogmatic uh, commitment to a particular way of thinking whatever is you know floating his boat and whatever's causing him to to talk in the way that he does which is very different from who he was when he wrote feral it's a very different kind of way of thinking which is interesting um you know none of the it's just unacceptable to him he just sort of says you know the science is is king and we have to all bow to the to the god of science and um and and do what it says rather than respect and reflect on the lived experience of people so he's, there's a real contradiction in what he talks about. He talks about marginalized communities and then at the same time marginalizes a community. So I think there's a lot of anger and frustration from the particularly regenerative agriculture community about the way that he talks about us and about what we're doing and dismisses us so entirely. Would you be up for a debate, like a, a facilitated discussion? With, with George Rombier? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I would love to, but he's like just says no all the time. <laughs> I mean, oh, and he, interestingly, he like so he was invited to debate Alan Savory. Did you see yeah. the debate? No, I didn't. But I've read a bit around Alan Savory. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because like Alan, I have real challenges. I'm very much challenged by Alan Savory, and his holistic management framework changed my life. Like, it's amazing. I live my life by holistic management. Genuinely life changing. But as a man, and the way that he talks to people, and he doesn't meet people where they are. He just tells them, "You're either you have to come on my journey or not," and he won't kind of you know talk to them about what they're doing and then say well you know this is how that would fit with what my suggestion is he just sort of says no you're wrong you don't know what you're talking about so and you know there's massive issues around colonialism and and patriarchy yeah. and what he's yeah. doing so yeah. yeah really challenged by that um and the, the you know two men basically getting on a stage to moan at each other and and kind of um yeah inflate their egos was a pretty awkward difficult thing to watch but yeah i would love i would love to have a conversation with george um i think he's an interesting person. And when I read Feral, I was like, yeah, this guy is cool. This is interesting. And he just seems to have gone off on a very different tangent that is, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I feel I'm perplexed by him. Okay. I'm, I've got him, uh, I've had some really lovely contact with him. I've got books in in October. Um, and at the end of it, I will suggest a sort of facilitated discussion because I think that, you know, if we think back to the first 30 minutes of this conversation, I mean, he seems like that person as well. I'm sure the three of us would have a lovely conversation and then get into this bit and it would start, we would start to disagree. And I'm seeing this all the time at the moment. And I promise we will get back to farming. But just one quick anecdote, side note. Um, <laughs> this splitting hairs in the community right now. I mean, of all the climate, I'm, I'm just going to call it the left for also want of a better umbrella. Just like 
everybody seeming to be piling on, you know, I just, I'm really, I'm really concerned about it. I'm really, really concerned about it. I understand the urgency. I understand frustration. I understand the fear that like we might get distracted by a thing that's actually not particularly helpful, like electric vehicles, you know, pub, pub, uh, private electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, but still the fact that like people within the community are struggling to talk to each other when, you know, we all share the same value set, essentially. It's very, very worrying. Um, That's like a real, like a real issue on the left, isn't it? And Darren yeah. McGarvey writes about this beautifully in his book, um, The Social Distance Between Us. And he talks about why uh, in the last couple of chapters really focus on kind of the politics. I don't, if you've, have you read the book? It's I amazing. Yeah. Brilliant. So he kind of talks about why um, people in deprived areas really suffered during COVID. And, you know, that this was just a, um, a culmination of policy decisions that basically led to, to huge groups of communities, particularly in Scotland, particularly in Glasgow, being um, marginalised and, and then blamed and take for, and expected to take responsibility for something that is nothing of their doing. Um, right. But he gets to the point at the end where he talks about like kind of the, the dissonance within the left and actually it's the, um, in, you know, the right loves that because the, the left is kind of arguing amongst itself about who's more left or who's, you know, what, what equality really is and should we be talking about equity or equality and should we be focusing on this particular side of the split hair or not? And mm -hmm. yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, and, it, and it is really fascinating, particularly coming from a, you know, in the world of agriculture, existing on a left of, left of center is, is, mm. you know, there's not many of us which yeah. is within agriculture who are in that position. And which means that we end up sharing political ideas and political spaces with people who have very different outlooks on the world and very different experience of the world to us. And then I think becomes, so you'd expect the left to be this inclusive place, but often it can be a quite very much not. And when I talked earlier about like safe spaces and I was in Amsterdam last year at a conference. Um, that was boycotted by um, a branch, like an animal activism and climate and the branch of XR locally. And they were kind of accusing the climate, uh, the conference greenwashing, regenerative culture. And I think they had a really good point to make. And they ran some fringe events, which I went along to. And they made such an effort to sort of go on about how it was this safe space. And it really didn't feel welcoming to me mm. at all. Like I didn't feel safe there, but they made such a performative kind of um, expression that we're in this safe space and everybody's welcome here. and I thought but do you know what I I think differently from you and I think that you're not going to make this a safe space for me mm -hmm. and so it, it yeah it's a really interesting I think naive place that a lot you know and it's because there's a lot of discussion around this as for young people um and I think as you kind of get you know like I'm 37 so as you get into your 30s and you kind of get a little bit not much older and not that much wiser, but you kind of start to see things in a slightly different way and the kind of exuberance yeah. and passion of someone who's 22 sort of saying, you know, welcome to this safe space and we're going to do this, that and the other. And you just kind of think, I'm not, I'm not sure you understand what a safe space really is. And it's not yeah. to undermine their effort, but it's just yeah. to kind of reflect that it's not, it might be safe for them, but it doesn't always feel safe for everybody else. Yeah. It's that thing of like those farmers going up the top of the farm to look down and get some perspective. And like the older that you get, the higher up on the hill you can go, you know. And some people choose to walk up it blindfolded, don't get me wrong, and never take it or off. Or not go up it at all. Yeah. yeah, or not go up it at all. But if you do choose to walk up it, you recognize like, oh yeah, no, things, everything is different. Everything is moving all the time. And I cannot see the entire picture all at once. Totally. You know, yeah. I cannot take a 360 degree view. I'm going to have to do this in bits. Or I'm going to have to have a community around me to tell me what's going on at my back and feed me that information and create 100%. the collective yes. understanding, you know? Yeah.
And but that that's not how dogma works, obviously. Dogma doesn't work with like getting information fed into you and then um evolving your thought process with it. And mm. I imagine as a farmer as well, with everything that you were saying about having to like take each day as it comes essentially and like look at the weather patterns, think about what you're trying to achieve and all the like how that can change on a diet, particularly in Scotland, I imagine, you know, um, you will have that, I don't know, you're training that capacity to think in a way that I imagine most people aren't. I'm still, I'm still keen though to get into, I mean, I understand animal activists, I really, really do. When you look at the state of factory farming yeah, and when you look at the state of the Amazon and beef and cattle ranching um, over there, I can completely understand the position of like, do you know what? let's just scrap it all it's too hard to reform let's just scrap all like we don't need meat to survive right now let's just scrap all um animal agriculture and then maybe we can restart later down the line once we've got a better set of values baked into our society because it just just seem i mean it is a huge problem the emissions and all of that so, i mean so can you speak to that like what is the position within the regen ag uh, community with regards to their position within a wider, very problematic um, industry. Yeah, um, and I think that, you know, again, within Region Ag, lots of people have different ways of thinking about yeah. this, but, you know, what we would be saying is that, well, many of us might think, or what I think anyway, and that's all I can really speak to yeah. is what I think. But, yeah, I think you're right, the kind of industrialised agriculture of any form, whether it's animal agriculture or yeah. it's cereal crops for human consumption that are, you know, basis of ultra processed foods that is then creating a human health crisis is is a huge problem so it doesn't really matter kind of what the food what it is that's being produced it's the um, correction it it, it's the commodification of that food that's the problem and it's the you know the global trade and it's the not thinking locally and it's the um the the way that our food system has become globalized and there's this brilliant um writer b can't remember her last name wrote a brilliant book about food um, sorry, it's, I've not had any coffee yet this morning, so I'm not fully functioning. But um, she she talked about uh, the global food issue, and she wanted to research. You know, what did what were global diets like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago? Well, they didn't exist. You know, global diet is a very yeah. current, you know, very recent thing. So our whole way of thinking about food has become entirely disaggregated from from our landscapes and from who we are, and it's become this homogenous commodified um, game of, uh, of supply and demand that doesn't really reflect the role of food in nourishing us and being part of the community and bringing people together. That's also very much an, like actually quite an anglicized view, not even like um, a European view. It's like a very American and anglicized view of food though, because there are you know hugely vibrant, excellent food cultures very nearby that we kind of have kind of make assumptions that that doesn't exist anymore. We look to Italy, we look to Spain, we look to France, you know, highly vibrant, um, very localized, high quality diets. Yes, that there's some infiltration of the commodified food system there, but there are still some underpinning principles that are not being, um, you know, that are being able to be maintained within, within a kind of Western civilization. So I think, you know, predominantly our obsession with, um, big ag and and kind of production is based not really on food it's about money and capitalism and driving growth and all of yeah. that kind of obsession so so we have to understand that these two things are separate you know they they present as industrial agriculture but actually the problem isn't industrial agriculture that's a symptom of capitalism and mm. 
you know, there's something there about understanding that you know these things actually have to be disaggregated in order to understand them a bit more deeply. We can't just assume that um, someone farming in that farm over there is bad because they're doing industrial agriculture. Actually, they are um, the reacting and responding to a series of policy decisions and um, yeah, political and economic levers that have been pulled by other people in order to force them to behave in a particular way to produce a product that, you know, is going to not serve their interest, is going to serve the people who are pulling the levers. So there's something about understanding the disconnect that we have in our food system that is driving all of that. Um, and I think that for those of us within regenerative agriculture who are trying to, and we might want to call it regen ag, we might want to call it um, agroecology, which is a term I prefer because it kind of, you know, aligns more with kind of social justice and more um, place-based ways of thinking. We, we start to kind of prioritize the ecosystem health and functioning that we are working within as opposed to the output. Um, and I think that's the, that's the key difference. We're not just thinking about the product at the end. We're not just thinking that the only reason I'm doing this is to produce X kilos of beef. The reason I'm doing this is to create abundance and diversity and ecosystem health. And that, that's the key difference for me. And that's something that, you know, coming back to the question about how does that relate to what George Monbiot talked about, that's the thing that's missing. He wants to talk about output. He doesn't want to talk about ecosystem health unless it's in a de de degenerative sense, like it's, um, you know, the, the, the negative impacts. And if you try and present actually what we've seen, significant increase in biodiversity, he just dismisses it. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges that we're kind of experiencing as a movement at the moment is that, yeah, as I said before, our lived experience is being dismissed because it doesn't align with, um, with, with the kind of expectation of what agriculture should or has become. Yeah. I think that there is also something in there about um the the way that we measure things so again this is something george mommy talks about he'll say that 100 percent pasture-fed organic beef is the most is the worst product and it emits the most methane well only if you measure methane in a particular way which is per kilo of product that you consume so if you take um, a kilo of beef and it's been produced in a highly intensive way um and that animal only lived for 13 months and then the amount of methane emitted in the animal's life was going to be much less the amount of methane emitted in the life of one of my cattle who will live to 27 months. So only twice as long. So it's not it's still not that long a life, but, you know, twice as long, potentially twice as much methane emitted. And that's because the animal took longer to get to that point where it was then slaughtered. So... George Monbiot would say that the animal that I've raised is worse for the environment because for that kilo of beef, it's emitted, it's been alive twice as long. Yeah. So it has emitted twice as much methane. Um, he will make the assumption that I will need to have fewer of those animals on my land because the grazing models and the science that has happened before tells us that, even though, as I've explained, the way that we manage our grazing hasn't really been able to be quantified and where it has to some extent been quantified in very recent research, it's already starting to show that actually you can carry you can carry more animals in these systems. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to have less, fewer animals. You can have more. But coming back to the point of, you know, if we only use a carbon lens and we only look through the the lens of methane, then yes, that that state that comes from a 13 month old highly intensively fed animal is going to produce less methane than an animal that's twice as old because it's been around longer. However, are we happy, and maybe we are, I'm not, but are we collectively happy with the additional impacts that that 13-month-old, 14-month-old steak has created 
compared to a 26, 27 month old animal who's been grazed in a way that is enabling more diversity, more abundance, um, more positive connections with community potentially than that industrially produced animal. So it's about understanding again, this idea of complexity cycle, um, and what, what are we, what are we going to be, what trade-offs are we, do we find acceptable? But in order to understand the trade-offs we find acceptable, we have to really understand the trade-offs and we have to really understand what, what the wider footprint is of the animal. And it is not just about, um, you know, that, that animal that's finished in a feedlot. I, I don't really want to eat that. Some people do, and that's fine if they want to, but you know, making, making an assumption that all meat is bad, again, is applying this kind of human judgment to something that has been part of our culture for hundreds of thousands of years. And I, I just find it very problematic that, that something that has been so present for us culturally for so long and has been so important in our diets for so long, suddenly in the, in the last 50 years, we've all decided that it's either A, unhealthy or B, really bad for the planet. There are definitely implications for industrially farmed agriculture. It has to stop. It isn't right for animals to be in those situations, but to paint all agriculture with the same brush is just, again, this idea, you know, just it's not embracing complexity in all of our lives. It's com the whole thing is complexity. It's messy. It's difficult. It's a cycle. And, and it, yeah, it just feels like a, an angry response to a situation and it feels quite often it can feel quite childish it can feel naive and it can feel um yeah like kind of a stompy toddler not getting their way and not wanting to listen to reason and that, that's difficult that's difficult to challenge particularly when that person is a man a white middle-aged man <laughs> and that's people that are maybe challenging that aren't white middle-aged men it's a yeah it's, it's a tricky power imbalance so the problem then with the agricultural systems is like how not what well it's a bit of both but what and how so not the fact of farming but like how we are doing it right now the on this scale how much meat we're consuming because it's the thing right I, i'm assuming if you scale up and i'm really making an assumption here because i have no idea but i'm assuming if you scale up agroecology so that everybody has access to some meat it would be some meat wouldn't be meat every day in the way that we, you know, certainly in Britain, the United States currently consume, right? I'm assuming that it would be more like once a week or once a month, people have access to something that's like incredibly high in nutrients. Um, yeah, we just lower our consumption, essentially, right? I would, that must be part of the model, I would assume. It is part of the model. So like, so um, there's a, an organization called IDRI based in France who modeled what an agroecological future across Europe would look like. Um, and their assumption was that we would need much, much less meat. However, what they didn't take into account was the grazing models that we're using. So we have this real challenge again, and it comes back to cycling. So cycling of nutrients. So if we want to produce um, legumes, grain, grain products, if you want to produce cereals, if you want to produce peas, pulses, whatever, all of that stuff, all of it somewhere has to be refertilized. We can't, if you take a crop off a field and you take it away, you've removed the nutrients from that field because the nutrients sit partly above ground in the thing that has been grown, but also partly below ground. So every time you take away a crop, it has to be replenished. Otherwise you're just extracting, extracting, extracting. You have to replenish in some way the nutrient balance of that field and we can do that generally in two ways we can either do that through um 
restoring that with manure and like bringing animals in. And some people do that by putting animals in a shed, collecting all the manure, putting it out on the field, or they would actually bring the animals to graze on that field so that direct deposition of dung and urine. Or we can reach for a bag and we can use synthetic fertilizer to do that job for us, which is, you know, an unnatural process. Is it, sorry, so we, isn't, isn't there a third way? Isn't there a third there, way yeah. they use the, the cycling between so you don't have monocrop culture? You have like all of yeah, these. but every time it doesn't matter. If you take something away, you've taken it away. You can't like replace yeah, yeah, yeah. something that you've removed. So yeah, you can use, you can have green mulches, you can have green manures, you can use cover crops and a lot of that will fix. Um, but it takes uh, a huge amount of, you know, if you've got, say if you're growing a cover crop, like um, you've grown, so you've, let's say you've grown your cereal and then you put a cover crop in, which is like all these amazing, lovely green, lush, beautiful plants that are doing amazing things and they're fixing lots of nitrogen and they're, doing a really really good job to then get from that back to growing another cereal crop for example or a grain you've got to do something with all of that green and a really good thing to do with that would be to graze it bring an animal on they'll eat it and they'll also trample it down and then they will um add in a load of their own manure and then we've put all that fertilizer we've put all that nutrient back into the soil and it's all ready to go again there will then need to be some sort of disruption if you like or ability for that field then to be prepared so that um, a, a seed can be sown for example like I'm not an economist so I'm not you know I can talk more about beef confidently than I can about arable systems but essentially we need to create cycles within our, our agricultural systems it is possible to grow a living mulch underneath um, so we're like growing some grains and then we have a living mulch underneath it so basically clover that will continue to kind of just add in some of the the nitrogen back and in those systems we would take just the head of the grain off and we would leave a lot of the, the stalk behind and then that will break down so there are ways yes but they are um there's always going to be an extraction so if you're always going to be extracting something you can't you know that nature death in nature is normal as we've talked about right so there has to be some kind of death and decay um, and breaking down of nutrients in order for them to be returned to the soil so but in, in simplistic terms, we have to have cycle, circular or cyclical systems within, within our farms. So animals play a really important role in that. And nowhere, nowhere on the planet do we have systems without animals. We just don't have them. They don't exist. I mean, we're an animal for God's sake. Nowhere on this planet do we have a system where it is just plants. But animals are an important and a like central part of cycling of nutrients. That's their job, you know. Cattle and other ruminants co-evolved with grasslands. They came together so that, you know, these grasslands would be the places that they are, these savannas would be what they are now, or sadly not what they are now. You know, a lot of them have become degraded, but that co-evolution shows us that our arrogance, that we think we can just get rid of like this whole taxa of animals that we can just go, we don't need them. We just, you know, let's just ditch them. Like, Fuck the arrogance of that. It makes me so angry. It makes me so cross that we that we think we can just say we don't need these anymore. Like, what is that about? Like how arrogant, how completely disrespectful of those animals and the the role that they play and the magic. I mean, the size of a cow, six hundred, seven hundred kilo animal, and it can get all that it needs from grass. Like that is amazing. An animal that size that can be healthy, that can produce a calf, that can do all of the things it's doing and all it needs to eat is grass. Blows my mind. Like, it's incredible that the way that evolution has, it's a bit like, you know, whales just eating krill, like huge animals <laughs> eating these tiny things. 
and they're able to sustain themselves. It's phenomenal. And we just, God, we're just so kind of arrogant and like dismissive of this absolute magic that is in front of us every single day. Sorry, I'm going off on a right rant now. No, I love that. I love that. It, yeah, it just, like, it's just yeah. so frustrating that, you know, a journalist doesn't know more about agriculture than a farmer does. Yeah. Let's stop pretending that people who read more than somebody who's actually doing it knows more about these things. George Monlieu doesn't know anything about cattle compared to what I know about my cows. He doesn't know anything about the fields that I walk every single day that I'm managing my cattle over. So can we stop listening to somebody who's never, who's never kind of engaged in, in producing animals in this way or, or supporting animals to live in this way? Because it, he's not an expert. He's a journalist. He's a, a very clever guy who is able to write well and who has got some really interesting ideas. But a journalist is not the right person to make decisions about our future food. Farmers and people who eat food are the right people and they should be brought together in rural places to have these conversations, not, not kind of these performative debates based in a city between two men. It's, yeah, we're, I've gone off on track again about, yeah, his yeah, kind of, yeah. but it just, it's incredibly frustrating that when you sit in a field and you watch, I was watching the wagtails who just follow our cattle around at the moment because of flies and they just kind of, and they also really like where the cattle trample and they particularly follow the calves around and like, for someone to make a decision about what agriculture should be, who has never sat in a field and watched the wagtails feed where the calves play, just needs to go. Like, just don't talk to me. Come and sit in a field with me and talk to me about these issues when we're surrounded by these issues, not in a place that is completely disconnected. Well, do you know what? Let's try and do that then. Let's try and have that. Seriously, let's try and have that conversation in a field. I think it's important because the other thing is to try and play like... um uh, not devil's advocate, not even peacekeeper, but like I'm just imagining myself or facilitator, <laughs> which is a role I'm taking on increasingly. And oh my God, it surprises me. Didn't think I was capable of it. Like we all have so much to offer. Mm. You just have somebody full of ideas. We all have so much to offer. We all have a welcome place in dialogue. But yes, there needs to be more understanding around like there is a difference between big picture intellectualization and like warning cries you know and I consider my role as somebody who's like warning 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 you know this this and you know and to try and like hold on to that big picture but I'm not the person that can say what we need to do I don't have enough knowledge in any one area right like what we need to do I'm just like I think there's big picture thinkers like journalists like writers like artists who are more like okay well if we change a whole bunch of stuff then like this might happen like we kind of can perceive the colors but we don't know how to mix the paint you know and like that dialogue between people who like know how to mix the paint and then somebody people would go like oh yeah but could you make it like just a little bit more green though please because that would look really great in part of our big picture like that's that's where all of these conversations need need to be had because the thing that I'm really worried about is like I don't want to create a a future anymore when people are so siloed either you know you don't know how to talk to each other and it's only like the scientists or only the farmers, or only that, you know, who have conversations amongst themselves around what needs to happen. Like, as you said, food producers and people who eat food and that everyone is mm-hmm. all of us. And we need to know what is sustaining us. We need to connect back to one another. We need to start participating in the decision-making process around what the world that we inhabit looks like. And right now we don't outside of going to the ballots and vote, the polling booths and voting every four years. 
And we know the yeah. casting vote doesn't really do anything anyway. So, <laughs> well, but yeah, you're right. We And, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of journalists. And there is a huge role for journalists, obviously, to play in exposing all sorts of stories. And to, But it's stories. And that's essentially, you know, there's it's presenting things as those people interpret them. But if they are going to be, get to a point where they believe their own rhetoric and they're not willing to listen to others and they are so dismissive and so rude towards other people, that's a problem. That's not the role of a journalist. And, and if you're going to take that role, then drop, drop, them, drop the fact that you're a journalist. Don't tell people I'm doing this because I'm a journalist. Tell people you're doing it because you're a passionate person who really believes in something and that you want to chase that particular dream that I don't believe is the role of, of a journalist. I think a journalist is there to establish the picture, to understand the fact or the opinion and pull those together and present that for other people in a way that is either entertaining or informative or whatever. It is not their job to tell people how to live their lives. That's, that's going beyond the bounds in my mind of what, what journalism is. But maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a journalist. So, Ooh. but, you know, and I think coming back to what I was saying about the, the work that was done at Idri, they kind of made this assumption that we needed less animals or fewer animals. So they said, we need less meat, fewer animals. Um, and when I dug into that with some of the guys that did that research, they said, oh, well, that's because we use models from the early 2000s where we sort of said, this is what, um, yeah, this is this is what we think um, you can sustain on this grassland. And I said, well, but what about all the cropland where we can graze cover crops? And they went, oh, no, 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 that's for arable. And I was like, yeah, but you, you can, like animals have these things called legs. You can move animals around, like they've got legs, you can move them, you can put them into different places. So we don't need to just keep animals in the grassland. We could put them on the arable yeah. cover crops afterwards. Yeah. So how do we model that? And they went, oh, I don't, what do you mean, how do we model that? Yeah. And I was like, well, we just, you know, we, the grassland is for the cattle, yes, but we can also put the cattle somewhere else. And they just went, no, 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 we can't. That's too complex. We can't do that. Yeah. So currently, there are lots of research projects that are looking at how can we better model the realities of farm systems where we're moving animals around and we're putting them in different places. Because at the moment, the assumptions that are being made about our carrying capacity for different animals is based entirely on how much grassland we have and then where we can put animals so that we can then feed them crops that we're growing for them. Rather, thinking about how those animals could go and graze on a field that's had a crop that's for human consumption and then the animals go in and graze the cover crops afterwards it's just not being it's just not being modeled so we're making assumptions and decisions and policy decisions based on something that doesn't reflect reality and that's hugely problematic nikki i'm gonna let you go because i feel like you've just hit on a really nice point but there's also one more question i have so I kind of, and, and actually it's, a, it's not even a question, but it's more about like to try and give people a metaphor for what um, grazing is and the, the animal's role. Is it that, you know, before we came along and our population boomed and we sort of got rid of all of the megafauna and all of, you know, sort of did some bad stuff uh, without realizing what we were doing. Is part of animal agriculture now trying to reinsert um, species into an ecosystem that no longer exists because we don't have wild um, animals like that anymore in Europe, in, you know, the United Kingdom, in very many places around the world. Um, like, is that one way of kind of looking at it? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that would kind of be more like a rewilding approach, I think. But you can use cattle as a proxy yeah. for that within well, yeah. the cropping system. Yeah, so you can just rethink about, like, we segregated out, this is where animal agriculture happens, and this is where arable happens, and this yeah. is where something else happens, and that's where something else happens. And that kind of, again, that simplification doesn't reflect 
natural ecosystems. So the simplification of our food production systems is the problem. And I think as long as they become more diverse, whether that's more plants, different plants being planted with and, and being cropped within a particular field, or whether that's a crop that's being produced and then cattle are brought on afterwards or before. So I think, yeah, as long as we just within, if we think on a very basic field level in this field, is the same thing grown every year, year in, year out? And in Aberdeenshire, where I live, then yes, a lot of that is producing barley that goes into whiskey. Um, or are there ways that I can create a bit of diversity? So could I put cattle on here for some of the year? Could I grow a different crop? Could I create more diverse margins around the outsides? So we have to have agriculture if we want to eat. Like we can't just get rid of agriculture. Um, much as you know, some people might think that we can just brew whatever we're going to eat in big vats. That massively undermines food culture and makes an assumption that, you know, food is just something that feeds us, but actually isn't. It's much bigger than that. It connects us. It brings us together. It gives us ritual. It gives us life. It gives us um, community. There are so many more things. So if we want to maintain the production of food to give us far more than just nutrition, then we have to have more diverse agroecosystems. Um, and we can do that quite simply you know, two crops rather than one, or we can go whole hog and kind of have a wild food forest if we want to. Um, but we also just have to accept that, you know, maybe a mix of all those things might be, a, might be the best way forward, which is probably more representative of how ecosystems work. There we go. Wonderful. Nikki, my final question for you is who would you like to platform? Uh, it has to be Claire Whittle, good friend of mine, who is um, a brilliant vet and a regenerative uh, vet consultant. Um, and is just like one of the most amazing people that I've probably ever met. And I just absolutely love Claire. So yeah, you need to chat to Claire. I cannot wait. Nikki, this has just been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.